Please remain standing for the reading of his word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. This is the word of the Lord. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word today, that your Holy Spirit would be free to open our hearts, to instruct us, and to teach us in your holy and perfect way, that we would be edified and built up as Christians. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Carl. Um, I want you all to put your finger in that passage. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be trying to ring that out. As you guys know, uh, we are about halfway through the series on the greatest commandment. Uh, this has uh, been a series that has been uh, particularly enjoyable for me because I feel like we've gotten to do some deep diving, uh, some defining on some words that are actually really difficult to define, things like love, things like heart, things like soul, and it's actually super hard work. I think it's something that like, uh, that work is going to pay off, I believe, in some really magnificent and amazing ways. Uh, It is of utmost importance to define these words, not just uh, grabbing whatever thing we might think about them, grabbing what culture might say or sing to us about these words, but actually grab what the Word of God in Scripture tells us about these. But I don't want for us to stop there. I feel like I'm going to end up spending a lot of time on this side of the stage, so I'm just... uh, just acknowledging that this morning, but um, here's, here's why it's that way. I don't want for us to just have like some sort of like uh, uh, ethereal kind of understanding of these words, even if it's something that comes out of God's word. I want for us to be able to understand and apply it in real life, not for them to be something that remains in the clouds, but actually gets ministry done here in this world. Sawyer and I, my wife and I, have had the privilege of counseling couples going through tremendous heartache over the course of time. We've uh, gotten uh, really the privilege to be able to sit down uh, in just some of the most vulnerable moments in a person's life. And this is where those words, words like love and heart and soul and today mind, actually come alive. They have consequence because it's really where the rubber meets the road. It's where scripture meets and intersects with our life. And I've noticed two dynamics in relationships that might help us kind of frame up a principle before starting today, may give us some bumper lanes, as it were, some things that I've noticed. Often when there's disunity, uh, one person in the relationship uh, tends towards the intellect and the other towards feeling. Not categorically, I'm not saying uh, uh, that it's all one way or the other, but just that there's a tendency in some people to tend towards either the intellect or towards the feeling. By the time I've uh, in, uh, been involved in, uh, uh, you know, in some of these conversations, I've just noticed that, uh, that as it comes to me, 
uh, you know, on down this road that one person uh, tends to have this kind of well-formed uh, argument, as it were, it, this uh, idea of what's going on, this A plus B equals C kind of attitude towards their spouse. And, and, and sometimes I've noticed that that other person, the one that uh, tends more towards the feeling, has gotten so kind of bludgeoned to death by that dynamic of the A plus B equals C uh, that they see the reason in it, but they still have all of these desires and affections and emotions kind of going on inside of them, and it's easy for that person to uh, think that they're crazy. Like, that's a word that actually comes up. It's, a, you know, one spouse goes A plus B equals C. The other person's in tears, and they're, like, looking at them, and the person's just like, I'm just waiting for you to tell me that I'm crazy, Chris. I just need somebody just to affirm the fact that I am crazy. And the second situation that I've noticed uh, is one where uh, one partner in the marriage has strong will. They're just strongly willed. They're, they're, uh, they have a, a definite uh, kind of understanding of uh, what they think is going on and where they want to go and what they want to do and what they want to accomplish. And the second has a weaker will. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But when the one that has the stronger will tends towards displaying much emotion, be it anger or uh, just uh, weeping, they'll use that to kind of assert their will over the other. So in, in the first case, you have someone who's overvalued the intellect and the reason. And, and uh, so often I feel like my role is just telling uh, the person that is, uh, just has all of those affections and those uh, feelings, hey, listen, you're not crazy. Uh, your partner's just a narcissist. <laughs> they, they, they think that they can like reason this all out and get past your emotions. In, in the second situation, I feel like uh, there's some understanding that what needs to happen in that, uh, or just needs to be understood in that relationship is that one person is wielding their emotion, be it anger or just intense sadness, as a weapon in their relationship. So in the first, it's just getting that uh, a person that's uh, like just overusing reason and the intellect to understand that, uh, that they've, they're overusing something and that their spouse isn't crazy, they've just got feelings. In the second, it's to help them understand that one person in the relationship is an emotional terrorist, just kind of using their emotion to bludgeon the other person into submission. But here's what we need to understand about God. Here's where the rubber meets the road in those situations. God is a God of facts and order and intelligence and reason. We need to get that. You need to know that. We need to understand that. And, and we have to know and understand that God is a God of feeling and affection and deep emotion. In order for us to be true image bearers, in order for us to really display this God that we are made in the image of, we ought to be both intellectual and emotional. Otherwise, what you are is a walking heresy. Does that sound really strong? Like, I mean it that strong. I mean that like, as image bearers, we're supposed to be carrying around with us some holistic vision of who God is in his totality, and if he is a God of reason and intellect and a God of deep emotion, then we ought to be as healthy and whole and holy beings, non-heretical, not saying that God is either this or that. We need to let people know just by imaging forth 
that we are not to emphasize one over the other to the exclusion of others. One generally falls into an ism called intellectualism. The other falls into an ism named emotionalism. Now, I've never met anybody. Maybe you're thinking that your spouse or uh, your friend, just a relationship, uh, that they fall into one category or the other. But here's what you need to know. I've never actually met anybody who is not emotional. You really peel back those layers of the onion, you're going to find a person You're going to find a person that deep down inside is like really wrestling with some soul-level anxiety, fear, anger, hate, insecurity, discouragement. Never met anybody who's not emotional, not once ever. And I've also not met anybody who is just pure emotion, where they just don't understand any amount of reason and rationalization. What we want to do, therefore, is understand the pitfalls of the isms, understand the pitfall of intellectualism on one side or emotionalism on the other, and see how we can grow into whole image bearers, non-heretical image bearers of God. And that's where it brings us to in the text today, because God's word is not so simplistic. Amen. I I just want for us to see it in his word this morning. What we're going to emphasize out of this greatest command this morning is that the mind of man, the mind of man fuels the fire of love for the Lord. The mind of man fuels the fire of love for the Lord. And in order to understand that fully, I've got three questions that I want us to go about the process of answering this morning. The first is, what is the mind? When we say the mind of man, what is it? The second is, how do we use that mind? And the third is, how do we love with it? What is the mind? How do we use it? How do we love with it? Maybe the the best way of even putting that third one is, in what way do our minds serve the ultimate ends of loving the Lord? If we're told to love the Lord with our entire mind, how do we use our minds to serve those ultimate ends of loving the Lord. This week uh, is different than previous weeks, right? We've been in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy where we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. There's three things. But then when Jesus comes along and he's asked in Mark chapter 12 and weeks prior, we actually hear that he gives a slightly different answer. And the reason isn't because the commandment has changed, it's because the language has changed. So we've gone to, from Old Testament Hebrew where the heart is actually like really encompassing also of the mind to now the Greeks are actually breaking this out a little bit. And so in order to love his audience, Jesus breaks it out into fourths. Here we get another person asking Jesus about what he thinks. This week a lawyer someone who was not like a lawyer in the sense of they were down in the courts like deciding things or representing people the way that we think of lawyers now. They were actually tuned in with the Old Testament law. He was a lawyer, God's law. He specialized in it. And he comes in and he asks Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We can already see that he's using his mind because he comes to Jesus and he says, you're a teacher, I'm willing to be taught. I want you to help shape my mind. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds back to him. What's written in the law? How do you read it? 
And this man proceeds to give us, though a slightly different version, it is the same commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, just go ahead and do this and you'll live. If you can do that, you'll have eternal life. Don't worry about it. You've gotten the law figured out. Just go do that. Live that law and you will live eternally. But then something interesting happens. The lawyer says, but he, desiring to justify himself, takes one piece of that commandment and says, well, who is my neighbor? Is he using his soul here to try to discern this? Or is he using his mind to ask a question and justify something that is deeply rooted inside of his heart? I'd suggest to you that it's the second one. He wants to justify himself. So we're dealing with a lawyer. This is a man who's devoted his mind to the law. He's gotten the answer right, but he's gotten the heart of it wrong. And so he's trying to use and swim back upstream to his mind and justify some sin inside of himself. Clearly, this lawyer has something on his mind, something he's developed in his mind, something that he's willing to justify with his mind. And that brings us to the first question that I want for us to answer this morning. What is the mind? What is the mind? The mind is more than just the mere material of one's brain. I need need for you to think of the mind in that way. If you're going about just a purely scientific idea of what the mind is, thinking of the synapses, I've got really bad news for you. Scientists don't even understand the brain. Neurologists will be the first ones to tell you that they can explain a lot of what's going on in the mind, and they still have no idea how memories are kept in there. If you're looking just simply at the material, we don't even understand it. And what I'm telling you is, as mysterious as that is, the mind is far more complicated than that. It is more than just material. It reaches beyond the physical. The mind is a set of faculties, including cognitive aspects such as consciousness, imagination, the ability to perceive things, the ability to think things, sheer intelligence. But even beyond that, it's like things like judgment, just having discernment and judgment. All of your mind is made up of some kind of language. You might be a a person that knows many languages, but you're thinking in your mind with an internal dialogue, a voice that is thinking in language, and you're dealing with memories. Now, there are lots of ways that that can become uh, dysfunctory. You can have a lot of dysfunction in your brain. Not all of us have minds that are recalling of things as much as other people. Not all of us have uh, the sheer intelligence of other people. Not all of us have cultivated the ability to discern. There are actually some people that don't think in terms of language. That blows my mind. If there was a way for me to turn down the volume knob on the language that goes on in here, I would turn that sucker down by like half. I think I'd be a lot healthier person for it. I'm just always thinking, and I've got that language that's going on. But together, all of those things work together as the mind. And God has designed our mind. The first one that I mentioned is the one that is most mind-blowing to me. No pun intended. It's consciousness. It's consciousness. God has designed the mind to be conscious of itself. And I don't want for us to assume that. 
I don't want for us to step over it in a moment and just go, yeah, we're conscious of ourselves. No big deal. Your mind is conscious of itself. Many living things have awareness of pain or pleasure. Many living things, down to even just single-cell organisms, have an instinct for learning and survival. I learned this week that bees actually know how to measure time. You go, wow, that, okay, that, I'm not sure how surprising that is. They don't have watches. There, there was an experiment done where a scientist took a little cap of like sugar water, placed it outside of the hive at four o'clock every day, and guess what? When he took the thing away, when he stopped giving it, what do the bees do? Four o'clock every day, they're sitting there going to that thing. You go, well, maybe they're just, they're not measuring time. Maybe they just know it's daytime. This is about the right time. No, no, no. They did that experiment inside, indoors, without any light. And people go, well... Maybe they could still feel the like, radiation of the sun. They still have something that's helping. They go, okay, let's do that experiment. We're going to do it in a salt mine under the earth. There's no like radiation. There's no nothing. People still were trying to find, how are the bees like knowing what time it is? So there was a, uh, a Parisian um, scientist in Paris that decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do this experiment, 4 o'clock every day, then I'm going to fly all of these bees over the course of eight hours to New York and see if they still come out at the right time. And they did. These little creatures weren't measuring the sun. They weren't measuring anything. They had an internal clock that they were aware of something. That is mind-blowing. But you know what the bees aren't? Self-conscious. They don't know that they're bees. They don't have some understanding larger than themselves that they use to interpret the present circumstance. No bee has ever judged right from wrong. No bee has ever done that. Isn't that crazy? Consciousness is a nutty concept. Scientists and engineers, it's not, it's not just, uh, you know, uh, physical living beings. It's also programmers who are working feverishly to develop artificial intelligence. Uh, what we know is that in 2019, uh, across the world, we used $26.6 billion, not million, billion dollars trying to develop artificial intelligence that is somehow aware of itself. And that's just the numbers that we know of. The truth is, is that all of the world's superpowers know and understand that whoever gets to that first little point of like artificial intelligence will rule the next millennia. So that $26.6 billion, that's nothing in comparison to what the real numbers are. It's not even close. But you know what? I have my doubts. I have my doubts that human beings will be able to make something that is not artificially intelligent. We already have a lot of that stuff. You know what I'm skeptical of? I'm skeptical of us building something that's wise, something that's knowledgeable, something that's aware of itself. I'm pretty skeptical of that. Human beings are unique in that we are conscious of ourselves and God is the one who designed us that way and uniquely gives human beings that gift in his image. We're conscious. Our ability not just to perceive things in our surrounding, but our ability to imagine them differently. Another word for that would be creativity. The, the idea that human beings are able to like uh, imagine symphonies in art is unreal, mind-blowing to me. The mind is crazy. 
When you look at everything from the pyramids in Egypt to Machu Picchu, these uh, old uh, ruins that are up on top of a mountain, if you look at Bach to J.J. Abrams' movies, I mean like the capacity for human ingenuity and creativity is amazing, and God gave us that. That's what the mind is. God designed us for and then commanded us to have things like wisdom and discernment and judgment. These imperatives are impossible without the mind. They are the mind's primary employment. You can't do it with anything else. You can't do it without the mind. So, so here's, here's what I haven't told you. I haven't given you like a surefire, like I know what the mind is. You want to know why? Because it's pretty mysterious. It's pretty amazing. All of us will be using our lifetime to discover what the mind is capable of in our own way, in whatever way God has commanded and uh, just joyfully given us the privilege of exploring what we can use our minds for. But you do have a sense of what the mind is. But especially lacking disciplined education, as many of us have, as I have, I do wonder how to use the mind. So that leads us to our second question this morning. How do we use our minds? How, we're, how do we steward them well? How do we think about thinking? First, we need to understand the disciplines of the mind. Thinking, in particular, as a spiritual activity. We need to know that our minds are given to us for something more than just trying to get an A on a test or trying to get through this next job project. We need to understand that the mind has been given to us. How are we to use it? Well, we need to understand that this thinking, this mind that we have is used for spiritual stuff. So what is the goal? What is the goal of the mind? I'm going to talk here in just one moment about six habits of the mind, six healthy habits of the mind. In fact, I'm going to get pretty, uh, for once in my life, pretty practical about what it looks like to use our mind. So if you're a note taker, i got six things for you here in just a minute. But what I want you to know is that the mind is primarily for inculcating godliness, for being more godly. Where do I get that? Romans chapter 12 says this, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do I know that the mind is used for spiritual stuff? How do I know that thinking is a spiritual activity? It's because here we are to present all of our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. But it goes on, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. We are to be glorifying God, worshiping God by being transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. We're going to use that uh, passage there in Romans chapter 12, which is well worth memorizing, by the way. I'm going to go through these six habits, and then we're going to talk about how that applies. We're going to kind of unpack that verse a bit. The first thing that you want to do with your mind is observe. The first thing that your mind is, is observing. Anybody who does like really good Bible study is going to tell you that the very first thing that you're doing is reading the text and observing it. 
It's not trying to extrapolate some big theological principle like right off the bat. It's just simply observing things. Observation is the observing accurately of the things that you see. It's the basis and foundation for any good thinking. Observe stuff. Be a good observer. If you're wanting some practical application this morning, start with observation. Observe other people's behaviors. Observe the text that we're studying. Observe uh, everything from traffic patterns to uh, the love languages of coworkers. Observe things. Be a good observer. Without observation, you can't do the second thing, which is look for understanding. You observe and then you try to seek understanding, looking for a connection looking for a connection between all of these observations that brings meaning and knowledge and helps you create standards in your life. If you're doing a Bible study, observe the text. The second step is seek to understand the text. The third thing is evaluation. So you've observed it, you've tried to seek understanding, now you're evaluating it. What is good? What is bad? What is beautiful? What is broken? What is worthy? What is redemptive? Evaluate the things that you observe, the understanding that you have, bring about evaluation. The next one is going to be a little perplexing. It's it's feeling. How do you feel with your mind? Here's what I mean by feeling. It's easy to understand what I mean by observation, understanding, evaluation. Here's what I want you to do in this feeling section. What you need to do is understand that your mind is helping you turn the dials on the things that you feel. You need to have regulation of feeling. If you don't know how to feel about things, that is unhealthy. If you take really, really big things and you minimize them, if you take God and you think of him in really small ways, it's unhealthy. If you take a sports team that should be like way down here and it's your reason for life, it's like consuming all of your thoughts. If it's taking up the oxygen in your brain, if you're just going like all the way with your sports team, you've inverted the things that are meaningful. You don't know in some sense what it is to be human and appropriately order the affections of your heart. The mind helps you regulate those feelings. All of these things are kind of internal. They're done internally. You observe, you understand, uh, you evaluate, and then you regulate. The next two are outward. You want to apply. Now we want to do something with all that observing and understanding and evaluation and regulation. We want to apply these things to our lives. This is where you start building judgment and wisdom and things like this. And then... I want you to express. You need to be able to express. There are so many people out there that fill the seminaries full, that have gone there to observe God's word, to understand God's word, to evaluate God's word, to have it in some sense like regulate what they uh, feel and then begin understanding how to apply it. And then they open their mouths and you have no idea what they're talking about because they can't express it. It doesn't matter if they're writing something down. You're like, define the terms for me. 
Tell me what you mean by something. Order it. Say, this is what God said, therefore, we're building connections. We're building order into the things that we're trying to learn. One of the reasons why I even have a system in the way that I preach where I'm trying to go about like actually discerning the, uh, uh, the primary point of a passage and then build the gospel message off of it and then have questions that we're answering every week that are leading us towards the gospel. And then if we can get to it, start applying it, it's because I need that. I need to be thinking of things in an orderly way so that they don't get expressed in chaos. Expressing is how we take what we have learned and put it into effective forms, and we do that in every area of our lives, from parenting to preaching. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You ought to be able to at some level have the rhetoric, have the diction to be able to communicate the gospel to people. If you have not learned how to express what God is teaching you, what you are thinking, then you can't bring anybody along in this process of thinking. Thinking is the use of the mind on the quest to discern the will of God. That's what Romans chapter 12 tells us. It's not what I think. You want to know the will of God? How many times have you thought that to yourself? I just wish that God would tell me what to do. He tells us to think. You want to know what the will of God is? Think about it. And I know that there's a couple of people out there that are going, that doesn't sound right. Let me show you that it's right. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7 says this, think over what I say. Paul is telling Timothy, this pastor, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I want to highlight a few words there. He starts with the word think. He says, think about it. Take it up. Don't just read over these, I'm sending you these letters. I don't want you to just read them and then put them away. I want you to think about them. And when you think about them, the Lord will give you understanding in what? Everything. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Understanding all things, this passage is saying, is the success It's the successful outcome of thinking. It's the arrival at truth. Now, if we can be honest, there is an entire segment of our brothers and sisters in Christ that want to de-emphasize thinking. They want to talk about the Spirit. They want to talk instead of looking at God's Word and discerning God's Word and letting that be sufficient for what we are thinking. They want to emphasize a spiritual connection with God. Now, here... We need to hear them on that and like learn from that. We do need to have something that we are connected in with God. But a lot of people just need a word from the Lord. And they're not looking at the pages of the text. They're not looking to think about the pages of the text. They're not trying to hear from the Lord in the primary way that God has sufficiently spoken to us. They want a word to be revealed to them. And what I'm going to tell you is I think that that's all wrong. I think it's all wrong. This passage tells us to think, and then the Lord will give understanding. I want you to think about that for just one moment. 
What, what he does is he says that thinking is essential but not sufficient. If, if Paul thought that thinking was sufficient, that passage would say, think about what I'm saying. Think over what I'm saying, period. But it doesn't say that. It says, think over what I'm saying, comma, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Thinking is essential, but it's not sufficient. God is the one that brings understanding. Think. Use your mind to go to God's word and think. And God will give you understanding of everything. So if if Romans chapter 12 says that the goal... The goal is for us to be holy and for us to be worshipful by being transformed in the renewing of our minds in order for us to discern God's will, then what we are after is truth. If you you do good thinking about that set of verses, what we are really after is truth. We are truth finders, truth seekers, we are truth desirers. But why does it tell us to be renewed in our mind? Why does he say that? Why why would we need to be renewed in our minds? It's because the Bible has a painful first truth for us that we must observe and understand and evaluate and feel things about. We need to be understanding that we are in need of renewal. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says that the mind is set on the flesh The mind set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. We're broken in our minds. Do you feel that? I feel that. All the time I feel that. I go about trying to think about things and uh, my mind wanders away to things. My mind is captured by things that are unholy and ungodly. My mind is broken. Your mind is broken. What Romans 8 chapter, uh, what Romans 8 verse 7 says is that our minds are set on the flesh and that if they are set on the flesh, they are hostile to God because they do not submit to God's law. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18 has stronger words to us. It says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from life. They're alienated from the life of God because they are ignorant and they are hard-hearted. That's that's what Ephesians chapter 4 says about us before we come into painful contact with the gospel. Ultimately, we must understand that apart from Christ, our minds are not just broken. They are futile in their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They are ignorant. They are hard. And all of that leads us to a place where we are alienated from God. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 is trying to tell us. So how can we be transformed by the renewal of our minds? Where does that come from? Where does that kind of transformation come from? If your mind is painfully broken, where do you go to get healing, transformation, renewal? We go to the gospel. We go to the gospel. You want to hear good news this morning? 
You want to hear what the gospel has to say about not just our mind, but the mind of God? Here's what it has to tell us. The gospel is that the mind of God has made a sure plan for our redemption, for the redemption of the mind and heart of man. I'm going to flip over to Acts chapter 2 really quickly. You don't have to turn with me there, but I am going to pull out of this place a a pattern. I'm going to pull out a pattern, and I'm going to make some observations about this text that are going to show us that it is not just a pattern that is going to end in knowledge. It's also an unfolding of a plan that God has. Starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand that I may not be forsaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwelled in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's being very logical with them. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would be, uh, that he would Uh, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Pay attention to this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here's the pattern of knowledge that I see. First, the, God's mind had a definite plan and foreknowledge to deliver Christ to death and from death. He had a definite plan. The mind of God made a plan to redeem things, and he had a definite plan and foreknowledge to, des, uh, to deliver Christ to death and from death. Second, God's mind shared this plan with the prophets and the kings through the covenants. David is highlighted here by Peter. It says that David in particular penned the Psalms to profess that a mindful, trustworthy, foreknowledging God would send a Messiah. Third, Peter said that the crowd could use their minds to discern truth. Why? Because they were witnesses. 
said, you yourselves know this. He's building an argument for them. He's telling them to use their minds, to have made observations and understand what is happening so that they can have knowledge. And finally, he says this, let all of the house of Israel, all of God's people, know for certain the truth. That's you. It's not just those brothers that he was talking to that day. It's you. You can know for certain the truth. And that is that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what is the response to this knowledge? The the, the people that are standing there in front of Peter, they, they know that there's a response that's needed. They say, brothers, what shall we do then? And Peter is quick to tell them precisely what this thinking, what their minds should lead them to do. They should repent of their sin and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and then you will receive forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. You must see that the gospel is the chief effort of God's mind. You must see that the gospel is the chief effort of God's mind to redeem you. If you're wanting to answer the question, how do I use my mind, you have to know how God used his and it was for your redemption. If you're ever going to understand how to use your mind, you have to know that before you even get started. So this gospel is the chief effort of God's mind. But what about your mind? Remember, we have one more, one more question that we're going to try to answer this morning, and that is, how are we to understand how our whole minds serve the ultimate ends of loving the Lord? The greatest commandment tells us, love the Lord with your whole mind. And and, and if we're being honest, loving the Lord with our whole minds is rather mysterious things. How can we be loving with our minds? The reason I went to Luke today is because of the Greek syntax and word choice was actually really helpful. I I started off by telling you that there were these three places that we were visiting about the great commandment. We started off in Deuteronomy with the Old Testament and emphasized certain things about this law, this great command. And then we went to Jesus and what he had to say. But here, the lawyer is asked in return, uh, not just what must you do to inherit eternal life? Uh, You know, uh, tell me your law. Tell me your reading of it. And he comes back to Jesus with a very slight nuance. You won't notice it in the English because it's that slight. But in the Greek, there's a tremendous difference. The way that that literally reads is that we are to love the Lord from your whole heart, but by your soul and strength and mind. What's the difference there? We're to love God from our whole heart, but we're to love him by these other three things that include the mind. Why why does that make a difference? To love God from the heart, is the essential meaning of the great commandment. Love issues from the heart. Desire issues from the heart. Affections issue from the heart. But the soul and the strength and the mind are the ends to that. I'm sorry, are the means to that end. But what does that mean? It means that the job of the mind, how you love with it, 
is using your mind to heap truth on the fire of the heart. If you want to li- li- like just learn to love the Lord with your whole mind, you have to understand how you love with it. And what we can discern from these collections of passages are that we are to love the Lord with our whole heart, but that it's the job of the mind to keep kindling on the fire of love in our hearts. Where are we loving God from? Love and desire and affections, they don't issue from the brain or from the mind. The mind's job is actually taking this fire of love for our God and just kindling it, blowing oxygen into it. Your mind, remember how we said that it is uh, meant to seek out truth. The mind is the truth seeker. It's going out there and it's collecting the kindling of truth and it's taking it back and it is just stuffing it into the fire of your affectionate heart. You might not think that that sounds very practical. You might just go, okay, I I kind of get how the mind is kind of seeking out truth and then trying to put it into the furnace of the heart. But when you really think about it, it's really helpful to know what we are to use our minds for as we try to seek the ultimate ends of loving the Lord. John Piper says this, What does it mean to love God with all your minds? I take it to mean that we are to direct our thinking in a certain way. Namely, our thinking should be wholly engaged to do all that it can to awaken and express the heartfelt fullness of treasuring God above all things. When the mind does everything that it can to stoke the fires of the heart to love God more than anything, we are kindling and fanning that love fire to consume every affection that we have. Then we are loving the Lord our God with our whole minds. Second Peter verses uh, 3 in chapter 1 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and his excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of that sinful desire Here's what you need to know. You cannot love someone that you do not know. You've probably heard that before. It makes sense. You can't love someone that you don't know. How do you love the Lord with your whole mind? You got to get to know him. You got to use some of these practical things that I was trying to uh, kind of massage into this sermon to like go out and get to know God more. The primary place you're going to do that is by going to Scripture, but it is not the only way that we're going to use the mind. Guys, you can't love someone that you don't know, and that knowledge needs to be intimate. How do we go about doing all of this? How ought we live in light of this? 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, 
but is himself to be judged by now one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Pay attention to this. But we have the mind of Christ. Practically, how do you do this? I just want to, if you're going to write anything down today, I want you to write this down. Aspire to ask, uh, aspire to and ask for the Spirit's help and set about the lifelong task of having the mind of Christ that we see in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. Aspire to have the mind of Christ. Ask the Spirit's help in having the mind of Christ. Set about the lifelong task of having the mind of Christ. And two, Colossians 3, verse 2 says this, Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things here on earth. I've got one really practical thing for you this morning. This is the last thing that we're going to talk about this morning with any kind of definition. Social media, if I can be so bold, rots, infects, and exhausts your mind. It does. Your addiction to social media might be playing in your heart and just saying, well, you know, I mean, it's my job. I've got to, you know, promote this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might have to promote something. But those rabbit holes that you're constantly going down, they're affecting, they're uh, rotting, they're exhausting your mind. The algorithms are literally designed to set your mind on this earth. It makes a practice of and is the very definition of and curates and cultivates futile thinking. I challenge anybody to tell me that social media doesn't make you more of a futile thinker. If I can be so bold this morning, I want to call you to set your mind on the things that are above by reading scripture, by prayer, by devotion, by fellowship, and deleting the apps. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would liberate us by the power of your Holy Spirit to love with our whole minds. May we crave the knowledge of you, the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of your Son, the knowledge of your saving grace through the gospel. Father, would you enable us to be truth-seeking observers, understanders, evaluators, and regulators that apply and express your truth in holy ways. Transform us, Father, by the renewing of our minds with the mind of Christ. Help us to stay away from intellectualism and emotionalism that we might no longer feel uh, hostile towards you, darkened and futile in our thinking, and especially alienated from you. Father, let your gospel do a mighty work in City Church. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.